Our sermon text reading today is from Isaiah 55, 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to peoples and a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the, th- instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Again, my name is Justin Smith, and it's just a pleasure to be here this morning. My wife, Catherine, well, half of you I know really well, and the other half I probably have not met before. So uh, it's really great to be in this room. My wife, for those who do know her, uh, sends her greetings, and my two children, Vivian, who is four now, and Nathaniel, who is one, and uh, they wish they could be here. But I'm so grateful to be here. I work with Reform University Fellowship, uh, the University of North Texas, which is north of Dallas and Denton, which is a big public uh, university with 40,000 students, um, students from all over the country, especially music. And what I learned recently, 41% happen to be first-generation students, first time they've ever been to college in their family. So 
a lot of um, working class and first generation Hispanic students. So it's a interesting campus and it's a really fun place to work. Um, I, I wanted to give just a brief update. My brief update is in the form of I just want to read what one student said in her senior testimony about what RUF has meant for her. She said this, when coming into college, the first couple of weeks were pretty rough for me. I was homesick, lonely, and felt unworthy. I think that my sweet mate sensed the emptiness I was feeling because one day she asked if I wanted to go to this church group that her friend had told her about. I was so excited at the thought of finding somewhere that I would fit in. So I said, sure, I would love to go. And for my first large group I went to, I knew that RUF was incredibly special and God had led me here for a reason. The first time I went to a senior night in RUF, I thought about what I would say when it came time to about give my testimony. I thought about where I would be and who I would be in four years, where I would be living, who I would be friends with, would I ever manage to get a boyfriend. Miraculously, I did. But the one thing that I never questioned was that I would be here in RUF. One thing that I've learned through my time here is that God will always meet you where you are. I found, often found myself comparing my relationship to him with others and feeling discouraged, feeling like it wasn't as strong. But God will meet you wherever you are and allow you to grow with him. That is what I've done throughout my time here, and it has made me excited to continue as a Christian, find community in the church, and allow God to guide my relationships and future endeavors. Sorry. Um, that's what we want to do. Lonely um, students who don't know anyone and, and really need the love of Jesus. And so we show up every week to do that. Um, so um, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Maybe I can regain my composure. Uh, Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Um, and I pray that as we hear your word this morning that you would speak to us. We want to hear you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many years ago, uh, I heard this Arthur W. Uh, or A. W. Tozer quote, which is on the front of your bulletin. And he says this, uh, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I still think he's right. How do we think about God? What are the thoughts that come into our mind? As a college pastor, one of the questions I often get is, uh, why is the God of the Old Testament so different from the God of the New Testament? Maybe you've heard this critique or had it yourself. Some would say the God of the Old Testament is characterized as harsh and judgmental, while the God of the New we see is kind and loving in Jesus. Well, part of my answer is that they need to actually go back and read the Bible with a little bit more scrutiny. Uh, for one, no person in the New Testament, save the whole Bible, speaks about the judgment of hell more than Jesus. But secondly, and reading and seeing the Old Testament in context, it's true that we do see God's justice on display and his judgment toward sin because sin continually disorders things. And it leads his people into oppression, into destruction, into hatred, into brokenness and disaster. And he wants to keep people from those things. But if we keep reading at almost every turn, we will continue to see that God pursues his rebellious people. 
even naming himself as one who is patient and merciful, always calling people to return to him that he might forgive and comfort. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this in the Old Testament is from the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, uh, if you remember the story, refuses out of uh, ugly racist pride to go preach to the Ninevites. Finally, uh, with some coaxing with a large fish, he finally returns to Nineveh and he preaches a really bad sermon, but he preaches this sermon about repentance. And the Ninevites repent. They turn back to God. And Jonah gets angry at this. He he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want them to actually repent, but he, he, he goes and he says this. Basically, he says, see, this is why I fled, God. I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> this is a direct quote. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. One of the most important things that we do here in church is to fix our thoughts about God. Uh, In his great book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland argues this. uh, The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He continues, The fall in Genesis 3 entrenched our mind in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that caused you to go there in the first place. And this passage, Isaiah 55, is this beautiful Old Testament passage that reminds us just of who God is. His insistence toward us of who he is. And if I was going to give this text a modern title... It would be this, free, limited time offer, satisfaction guaranteed. <laughs> free, limited time offer, satisfaction guaranteed. And that's our point, free offer and then satisfaction guarantee. So here, here's a funny question. What do Taylor Swift, the Beatles, and Ariel from The Little Mermaid all have in common, besides being tremendous songwriters? <laughs> Let me read some quotes. Taylor Swift. I'm alone, on my own, and that's all I know. I'll be strong, I'll be wrong. Oh, but life goes on. Oh, I'm just a girl trying to find a place in this world. Or the Beatles. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And then Ariel. When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore that shore up above, out of the sea, wish I could be... Part of that world. Each of these songs and in millions of other songs and poems and films and anything you can imagine, each have of us have this longing to belong. We don't want to belong like my students. One of our deepest longings is to belong. It's this, this deep longing to be invited and welcomed and to stay and to never well out that welcome. 
to really be known and to be really loved and be fully embraced. (laughs) To always have a welcome seat at the table and never be rejected. And here's the surprising thing that God says to your longing to be known and to belong. He says, come. He says, there's a place at my table with your name on it. Come. He says, I know you're thirsty, and I know you're hungry, and I know all the things you've done and the things that you're doing. I know the places that you've gone and the things that you're chasing that are not satisfying. I know you are searching for a place to let down your guard and to finally rest. And he says, well then, come. Come to me. All who are weary, come. And here's what we think. What's the catch? (laughs) What's the catch? Uh, Back when, several years ago, when we were really able to do kind of more normal stuff on campus, at the beginning of every year, we would, I would buy this big popsicle truck or, or, or cart, palatas, and we would just stand on campus and we would hand out free popsicles to students. And what was amazing about handing out free popsicles to students is, one, uh, how many would just simply turn them down? It's like a, a thousand degrees in Texas on the first day of school and they're turning around free popsicles. But secondly, how many of them would say, what's the catch? Because in our culture, we realize free isn't just free. It's going to cost us something. We're going to have to give out some information. We're going to have to put our name or number down on something. We're going to have to have a conversation with a pastor that we certainly don't want to have a conversation with. We're, going to have, uh, we're just going to have to give away something in order to get something in return. And we often would just say, no, seriously, happy first day of class. Take the popsicle. You don't even have to talk to us. Just take it and go. And even some would do that, but often some would come and stop and talk to us after that happened. When they realized they didn't have to talk to us, they would want to talk to us. And so the question is for us, when God lays out this invitation to come, everyone who thirsts, come by without money. How do you hear that? How do we hear that? Are God's gates really wide open to all who would come to him? Or are they actually locked and there's some secret password that we still need to figure out? Or some maneuver that we need to make or some grand gesture that we have to offer him in order to be welcomed? But God's invitation to us is not figure out the right password or the right handshake or the right words to enter. It's not clean yourself up, make yourself presentable and then come. It's not work off your debts and then you can. It's not make sure you've sorted out all your doubts and then come. It's not let me get my theology perfectly correct and in order and then come. It's none of these things. It's to come. And look, to try to to have some sort of maneuver or grand gesture or password and to pay or negotiate your way in is actually to disqualify yourself and to stay out. We have nothing to offer him. (laughs) Nothing that would justify our welcome. We have no money, nothing in of ourselves to bring, and yet he still says, come. But this raises another question from the passage. 
How do we have a transaction without money? <laughs> he says, come, buy, without money, without price. But that's a contradiction. How do we purchase without money? And he's not saying, come purchase some free popsicle, some free handout. He says, come buy wine and milk, which means, wine means joy, <laughs> and milk means sustenance. So he says, come buy the best without anything that you have, without any price. The answer is the, the welcome is absolutely free to us precisely because it costs Christ at the price. In other words, the offer is free, but it wasn't cheap. <laughs> we can come because we don't need, nor can we justify ourselves, because Christ has died for you. Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins is our ransom, our payment. It is our welcome to the rich fool. There's no additional payment to be made. There's no tax. <laughs> There's no tip. He has made it all. There's nothing keeping you back from the feast. Jesus has picked up your tab from now and for all eternity. And he says, come, drop what you have. Because of Jesus, it's simply come. Now, what this does mean is we're going to have to open our hands and release those bargaining chips that we've been holding on to, <laughs> those negotiating tactics that we've been using, those things that actually keep us for back from coming to Him. Our, whether that's our empty sins or our grudges, whether that's our anger or our pride, our fruitless ambitions or our temporary pleasures, or even our preconceived notions about who God is or who God isn't. We also have to turn from our, our fears of rejection. We have to turn from our self-loathing. From our past failures. We have to turn from our need for certainty. <laughs> turn to God and come without bargaining, without money, with empty hands and to simply receive because the bill has been covered. It has been paid. There's this hymn that you may have may not have sung at different points. It's called Come Ye Sinners. And in one of the lines in the hymn it says this, Let not conscience make you linger. Meaning, don't let even what you're thinking, your minds, uh, the way that you fix things in your mind make you linger from coming. Nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't think that you're ever going to actually do the right thing to be able to come. All of the fitness... God requires is to feel your need for Him. <laughs> and this He gives you. This He gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Even our need <laughs> to feel the need that we need to come is a gift given to us. We have nothing to offer. And Jesus and the Father say, come. John Flavel, this is old Puritan, imagine the conversation between the Father and Son in eternity past. And this is how it goes. I updated the language just a bit. But it says this. The father says, My son, here is a group of poor, miserable souls. They have completely ruined themselves and now lie guilty before my justice. Justice demands payment for them, or in time it will lead to their eternal ruin. What shall be done for these souls? And the son returns, O oh, my father, such is my love and pity for them. 
rather than they should die eternally, I will be responsible for them. Bring in all their bills, that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there be may, there may be no future retribution possible for them. And by my own hand, you shall require payment. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, place all the wrath. The Father says, by my Son, if you choose to do this for them, you must pay every last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son says, I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am willing to pay, and though it may will be a complete ruin to me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yes, I, yet I am content to take it all. And so Christ then dies for you and for me. Which means this. When Jesus' arms were stretched out on the cross as he bled, as Christ drunk the dregs of God's justice for us, his arms were also stretched open and welcomed to receive you as you turn and come to him, to wrap you in an everlasting embrace that you've always longed for, that place of belonging, that place of welcome. That's what Jesus' arms were stretched out to bring you. Christ has secured our place at the feast with the payment of his own body and blood. And his perfect account, his full bank account, all of his riches are now ours to pay for what we wish. The truth is this call is for all of us and not just the ones in the gutter. Many of us are trying also to be too good to come to God. We're trying to stay in line. We're trying to avoid sin so hard that we end up avoiding Jesus altogether. Some of us are trying to make sure we cross every T and dot every I that we might finally come clean and acceptable before God. But this is foolishness. We have nothing to offer. He gives us everything. Instead, put your deadly doing down and just come to him. Christ is your righteousness. He is your VIP pass to the throne of God. And so though there, though there is no conditions to be met by us, Christ has met them all. We can simply receive and rest upon him alone, freely offered to us. But it is for a limited time. Listen again to the passage. Verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What does it mean that this is a limited time? It means come while he is near. It means don't hesitate. It means don't turn back. It It means don't resist when you feel the desire to repent and return back to God. It means don't harden your heart to his love. It means don't say, I'll get to that later. The limited time of this passage has less to do with God's patience with us and more to do with our own resistance toward him. Repentance is the normal, everyday, every moment obedience of the one who has tasted of this feast. The one who has seen the glory and the kindness of the Lord. It is the fruit of a life that has come to know God. 
And so us changing is not prerequisite to come, but transformation will come for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, when our Lord said repent, he intends that all of our lives be one of repentance. So why should we repent and turn to the Lord? Here's, here's a handful of reasons from this passage and, and related. We repent because the Lord has drawn near to us. <laughs> he has drawn near to us. And so we should turn to Him. Secondly, we repent because when you've experienced the real love of God, it actually motivates you to change. This There's a Luther quote here. The more we look into God's fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly He loves us, it would warm our heart completely, setting them right. As we know the Father's heart for us, it will change our hearts to want Him even more. Thirdly, we repent because this feast is not a fast food meal. It's not a cheap option. It is the riches of delight, joy. It is the eternal celebration of Christ and all of His benefits. And when you taste this, you will begin to rearrange your life to be as close to the table as you can be. To return to this table as often as you can. Fourthly, we repent because the more we taste of this feast, the more our temporary sinful pleasures will begin to taste putrid and deadly to us. Now, have you ever fasted from something like soda or sugar? You take uh, several months off from these soft drinks or something related. And when you go back and you taste them, you realize that they are very sweet. <laughs> you might not have realized it before, but they're almost, they, at that point, they become too sweet for you to drink. And so you go to sparkling water or whatever. But that's the, that's the idea. Once you begin to taste the goodness of Him and His feast, all of the other things begin to taste not desirable. We were fifthly, we repent because the longer that we run, the easier it becomes to convince ourselves that we, and not Christ, are the ones who have to pay down our own debt. That we are the ones that have to pay our way back into God's good graces. Like sometimes God will allow us to run, to keep going, until we realize the self-destructive path of our own choices. But this is not because he wants us to pay. It's actually because he doesn't want us to pay. He wants us to repent and return and to take of him and to receive. This might look like someone who says, I'll go to church after I graduate. Or I'll settle down after I've had my fun. Or I'll worry about all those bad habits later. Or I don't need to ask forgiveness from that person. They're pretty much a jerk anyways. But the longer it goes on, the easier it is to keep going. And the harder it becomes to repent. Now this does not mean that the welcome is any different when we actually drop these things and our car has hit the ditch and we've returned to Him. The Father goes running after the prodigal when He finally comes and turns. But no one is too far gone. But to those who hear, God says, don't go down that road. Seek Him now. Forsake your unrighteous ways and turn back now. Sixthly, 
last one. We also repent because the longer we wait, the easier it becomes to forget who God actually is. We start thinking dark thoughts about God like Dane Orban brought up. We start thinking lies about him. That he's actually not that gracious. He's not that patient. He's not that loving toward me. One incredible insight from this passage I learned from that book, Gentle and Lowly, from Ortland, who actually received it from John Calvin, is from uh, verses 8 and 9. We read these verses 8 and 9 that talk about Uh, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you know that passage, you've you've probably used it in different ways. Typically, we use it when we think about God has done something or allowed something in our lives that we simply can't understand. And so his thoughts are higher than us. His ways are higher than us. He's sovereign and holy and unlike us. Now, that is obviously true and not altogether an improper use of these verses. But it's actually not what Isaiah is saying in the context of this passage. Uh, Let's go back to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. What he is saying is that God's desire to pardon and forgive and be compassionate is so much different than we are. His ways and his thoughts are unlike us. His ways are higher. He is more ready for to forgive. That is how he is so unlike us. He desires to have compassion on us. He desires to forgive us. Listen to how Calvin puts it. Uh, some old language, but I think we'll be able to hear it. The prophet draws a distinction between God's disposition and man's disposition. Men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves, for their hearts are moved by angry passions. And are very difficult to be appeased. And therefore they think that they cannot be reconciled to God. When they have once offended him. But the Lord shows that he is far from resembling men. As if he had said I am not a mortal man. That I should show myself to be harsh and irreconcilable to you. My thoughts are very different from yours. If you are implacable. And can with difficulty be brought back into a state of friendship. With those from whom you have received an injury. I am not like you, that I should treat you so cruelly. What he is saying is that when we've been shunned or hurt or slighted, isn't it most natural that we, even if we say differently, deep in our heart or the back of our minds, we desire to see the other person some way, somehow pay. We still have that inkling in the back of our hearts or minds that we still want to see them pay when they have hurt us. What Isaiah is saying is God is not like that. He is not like us. His deepest heart is to abundantly pardon us when we come and to not hold back. (laughs) That is our God. Another way to get at this is to ask you this question. What do you suppose is the greatest sin? The greatest pain that we could cause God the Father? 
the, the Puritan John Owen says it this way. It says, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. Not to believe that He loves you. The greatest kindness you can do is to trust that God loves you and He wants to welcome you. When He says come, He means it. And so when we come, it is satisfaction guaranteed. Free limited time offer, satisfaction guaranteed. In light of God's goodness, His power, and His readiness to receive and pardon, we also know this, that it is guaranteed because God's word is certain. And that's what verse 10 and 11 are about. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What God says will come, will come. <laughs> His word will not return empty. It will do what it will, what he set it out to accomplish. Again, this means God is different than us because he means what he says. When he says he will pardon and receive, he will pardon and receive. When he says he will, he will forgive us, he will forgive us. When he says he will have compassion on us, he will have compassion on us. He is not like us. We look for reasons to not forgive or to not receive or to stay away or to not be compassionate. Any little reason, any little suspicion is enough for us. But God is the opposite. His word is sure. He will do what he says he will do. And ultimately, his word is proven by the word made flesh. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And Jesus has accomplished God's purposes by guaranteeing our salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. And by, thereby securing our welcome seat at the table. Our confidence is in God's certain word. Now, does this mean satisfaction guarantee that life will be a breeze? Absolutely not. We have no such promise in this life. Jesus has not promised that. In fact, he says the opposite. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. But even though life will remain difficult here, it will not always be so. Though we limp along in sin and sadness and disease and brokenness, it will not always be so. Because eventually we, see, we will see all creation rejoice. The last two verses. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And, in, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is saying, like Paul says, that creation is waiting and it's groaning to be released from bondage into joy. Paul says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Tim Keller says, this world is not our home, but it will be. What will this great reversal of the curse look like. That's what he's saying in verse 13. No longer thorns and thistles, or thorns and briars, but 
grand cypresses and myrtles. It's a reversal. What will it look like? What will this new creation untarnished by sin be like? What colors will burst forth? What flavors will we enjoy? What deep, rich intimacy will we experience? We honestly can't imagine. But it will be full satisfaction. Full consolation. Or as Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So how do we respond? Just a few things. The invitation is there. (laughs) Come. (laughs) So drop your excuses your bargaining chips, your negotiations, and just come to Jesus. Secondly, begin to learn how to repent quicker. (laughs) And get your community to help you. Get your friends, your DNA groups, your missional communities to help remind you of the truth of God's goodness and open arms to you. Remind you to keep repenting and going back to Him. Thirdly, some of us need to stop eating the putrid food And eat what is good. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. (laughs) Turn from the cheap imitations and to the reality. And lastly, if this is all true, we can live joyfully and boldly before God in gratitude, knowing that our resurrection, our satisfaction, and our seat at the feast is secure. God's heart is for repentant sinners, for us to just come. And look, this call is so central to the heart of God. He is so ready to receive those who will simply return that it is repeated as the last word spoken to his people in Revelation 22. That's what we read earlier. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's God's heart. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it doesn't return void. Thank you that you are kind and good and that you desire us to simply return to you, to come and to receive and to know you and to know your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for making that way possible. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Beautiful to see how God is growing you and